Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Good morning. Go to God. This emerges crystal clear when I consider my non-negotiables. It's not a practice ingrained from upbringing or unquestioned dogma. No, it's the circumstances surrounding my entree into a 12-step program that catalyzed a deeper connection to my higher power that I call God. A connection in which I experienced my higher power doing for me what I could not do for myself. Going to God is part of my daily life, unceremonious, matter of fact. Consequently, what I know to be true today is what I used to be powerless over no longer influences my life. While aspects of personal and professional life are rife with remoteness and uncertainty, I also experience more profound connections and have greater clarity about the best next steps to take. When my soul is depleted, going to God taps into resources I am otherwise unable to access or am unaware of possessing. For me, the concept of God resonates deeply with one of the six sources of our UU tradition. It reads, direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and openness to the forces which create and uphold life. While tending toward the analytical myself, I'm not compelled at all to try and comprehend this wonder. Currently, my regular spiritual practice embodies a racial justice component. It is intentionally reflective and inward-facing to illuminate aspects of my racial identity, my privilege, that keep me from seeing, hearing, or accepting truths that are experienced by people of color. I'm referring to fleeting moments, fleeting moments while listening to the news in small groups, hearing a person of color share their lived experience, in which a split second automatic reaction arises in me. Something to the effect of, hmm, why doesn't she just? Or, well, that's because. And the thought continues with my own take, based on my own reality. Now these moments aren't intentionally callous, aren't, aren't intentionally a callous disregard of what I'm hearing, but they definitely are a disconnect with my beliefs and values. I literally wince inside. Even when I've invested time and energy unlearning these things through racial justice 
classes and workshops, by doing a master's thesis on racial identity and neutrality in mediation. Even doing these things, these moments still occur. That split second is wrought with something embedded deep within me, a racialized and privileged DNA that manifests in a nanosecond. As a result of the racial justice journey in this church, I've begun to notice these moments. My spiritual practice is to go to God with them. I apply a tool I've learned in recovery, pause, practice awareness until spirit emerges. Pause. There are myriad moments in which a power far greater than me can bring to the situation at hand a higher and greater good than if left to my own devices. In these racialized squeamish moments, I pause, not to change my DNA or the automaticity of that response, but for awakening, insight, direction for the moment that follows and the many more to follow. Come, let's worship. It was 1741 when Jonathan Edwards preached his sermon titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Maybe you were also forced to study this in English class? It made a definite impression on me. Back in 1741, in this sermon and in the days that followed, Edwards and others who believed like him traveled through the stolen lands of the still-forming American colonies and taught their particular truth that God dangled human beings like little tiny spiders over the fiery pits of hell and then just dropped you, if he felt like it, to burn forever or maybe let you up into heaven. And P.S., it didn't matter what you'd done or not done in your lifetime, it was just up to God and God's will. Now, it never really made a whole lot of sense to me why this was a compelling message that would bring people in in great numbers in the Great Awakening. <laughs> But it did. And what I love is that our universalist ancestors, these itinerant preachers, would intentionally follow Edwards and his gang throughout the country, and they would share their good news, that God is a loving God, a loving parent who would never consign anyone to the depths of hell. And then the universalist numbers would swell and grow until we were the largest denomination in America at that time. Now, some people say that the reason that universalism didn't stay the largest denomination, Christian denomination in America, is because we weren't so good at institutionalism or like organization, but which is maybe true for some places, not here. Um, but I think the actual reason why universalism didn't stay as large as it was is because this message is actually really hard to live into, that everyone is loved, everyone, ourselves, and others included. So this is what the message of universalism was then, and I think still is now, I know is now. It says this, you and everyone else in the world that ever was and ever will be are whole and holy and worthy in the eyes of God and are welcome in the wide embrace of this universe. All of us in all of our glorious variation of skin tone and sexual orientation and gender identity. All of us 
with all of our different religious beliefs and ways of making a living or constructing a family. All of us who make mistakes, those of us who feel guilty about them, and those who never know remorse. All of us, all whole and holy and worthy. And there is nothing that any of us can do to set ourselves outside of this wide circle of love. That's the heart of universalism. It's pretty much the single non-negotiable of our faith. And I think it's easy to forget what a radical message this was then and still is now. You see, it was 275 years ago that Edwards made his way around, or you can check my math, it's not my strong suit, but we still live in this predominantly Christian context, this land where the most common understanding of human nature says that we are born broken, born faulty and flawed and in need of salvation as soon as we draw our first breath. We live in a country that is founded in genocide and theft, rooted in racism and white supremacy with sexism and homophobia and transphobia going strong. We do not yet share a common understanding in this country that all of us, in all of our glorious variation, are whole and holy and worthy just the way that we are. So this non-negotiable centerpiece of our faith, it's a big deal and it's also a big challenge. And the trick comes in trying to live into it in our real lives, with our real feelings and experiences here in this broken society that we have been thrust into. Over the past two weeks, I've gone to see a couple of theater productions. I went to see The Laramie Project and The Laramie Project 10 years later. Both of these shows tell the story of the town of Laramie, Wyoming, and the murder of Matthew Shepard, a 21-year-old university student who left a bar with two men one night. These men targeted him because he was gay. They beat him and robbed him and tied him to a fence in the middle of nowhere and left him there to die. It was 20 years ago this past October. Now, I'll admit that I didn't feel all that excited about going to see these shows. It was 1998 when Matthew was killed and I was 23 years old and as an out lesbian by then I had already lived through my own experiences of violence. In high school, the one friend who was out as a lesbian was run down by a car outside of a gay bar. In college, I'd had bottles and epithets and threats thrown at me from car windows. I'd had well-intentioned, Bible-thumping family members try to convert me. And a dear friend's lesbian mom and her partner had been stalked and shot and one of them killed during a camping vacation. I remember very well the terror that kicked in when we heard about how Matthew had been attacked. I remembered how it felt to have the illusion of even a little bit of safety I had scrapped together be ripped away. And I didn't really want to have that all come back. But I went to see these plays because I couldn't believe that in 20 years I had never seen them. Because two people I care about dedicated three months of their lives to telling these stories. And it was important that somebody show up and listen to them. So these plays tell the story of what Laramie was like before and during and after Matthew's murder. And the voices come from actual interviews that are from a lot of different perspectives. The theater company that went to town interviewed the killers, Matthew's parents, a person in the theater department, the detectives, the woman who found Matthew, a woman who runs a local shop, and a couple of gay and lesbian residents of Laramie, just to name a couple of the characters. Throughout the first show, the town residents talk about this proud Western live and let live attitude that they have. 
They say, oh, as long as people mind their own business, we don't care if you're gay or you're straight. The townspeople say, oh, well, we just can't understand how such a brutal attack could have happened here in our community. We don't condone this kind of violence, they would say. Now, we don't condone that kind of lifestyle either, they'd say in the next breath. But we don't condone that kind of violence. In 1998, many of the gay and lesbian residents of the town live in a sort of hiding. They don't want to be seen with each other in public because it might alert people to their sexual orientation. When a new professor arrives at the university and she's an out lesbian, she gets these hushed phone calls from other gay people in town letting her know the rules here. Near the end of the first show, a longtime gay resident of Laramie is describing a conversation he had with a gay friend who also lives there. The friend had been saying, this is good enough for me, this live and let live attitude. I don't need other people to know about my sexual orientation anyway. It's fine. And his friend just broke it down for him. He said, really? You're telling me this is okay with you? This attitude that basically says, if I don't tell you I'm a fag, then you won't kill me? That is a good deal? So this is the language they were using in the play. And I'll tell you, this particular scene, it keeps on working on me. Maybe because I can understand both men's perspectives in this scene so well. And I think you probably can too. I think there are times for all of us when fear rules the day in our hearts. When we believe there's some part of us that is so shameful or so dangerous that the best thing we can do for our own survival is to keep those thoughts and feelings under wraps and hold them tightly to ourselves. There are times when we accept the diminishment of ourselves just to survive. And there are times when we are filled with rage at the blatant injustice of a world that privileges some with the basic right to exist free of harm and denies that to others. There are times when we know we have to hold up the light and speak the truth even when it is dangerous. And there are times when we need someone outside of us to show us how much we are actually worth because a part of us has begun to believe the lies we have been told by a law or a family or a religion or a society. There's this quote that is famous out there among ministers from Toni Morrison's book, Beloved. In this part in the story, everyone's out in a space in the clearing and the spiritual leader of the free black and escaped slave community gathers her people and preaches to them there in the woods. And she says, the only grace you can have is the grace you can imagine. The only grace you have is the grace you can imagine. I imagine that what she is saying to her folks gathered there is that you have to believe in yourself and claim your own worth. You have to imagine bigger than this moment and the lies that people tell you. You have to imagine what's possible for you and this world if we're ever going to move toward it. Don't believe the lies that people tell you about yourself. I love this and I believe in it. And I think this is some of what the man in the play was trying to say to his friends. Is this really good enough for you? Can you imagine more? And at the same time, while I love this quote, I have struggled with it always, too. I argue with it because I know for myself and I know from being with so many of you that sometimes we cannot imagine more for ourselves. Sometimes we cannot imagine grace for ourselves. It is too much. Sometimes we have come to believe the limits that others have set on us or the lies that they have told us. I know that for myself, particularly as a survivor of sexual assault, that there have been times when I believed that I deserved what happened to me 
And I know this is a common experience for other survivors too. Sometimes we are too beat down, literally or figuratively, by our society or our family or the weight of our mistakes or our shame or our guilt to even be able to imagine any grace for ourselves at all. Sometimes we need somebody else to hold up that possibility for us. And this is what I think our universalist faith does for us as individuals, for our community, for our possibility of our world. It holds up what we can be. It imagines the grace for us that all of us are whole and holy and worthy no matter what. It holds up that light and that possibility and that grace for us to live into. Now, it's something to really let this soak in to our hearts. This truth that our faith tells us that each of us really is loved and lovable no matter what. This is something to think about, to own for ourselves unconditional love and embrace. And it can be something to take it in for ourselves, but it can be something, too, to take it in when we're thinking about others. As a friend of mine says, well, I'm pretty fine with the idea that there's no hell for me, but I'm not sure I don't want there to be a hell for a few other people. <laughs> Just a couple. <laughs> be okay. So this is a real question. What about Matthew's killers? What about the man who just killed our siblings in faith at the Tree of Life Synagogue? What about the person who hurt you or your family or this earth in a way that we are all still struggling to repair? What about those people? Are they still inside the circle of unconditional love, this wide embrace of the universe, worthy of dignity and care? It is hard. But it's true, universalism's answer is crystal clear on this point. No one is outside the circle. Everyone is worthy of dignity and care. This is the central non-negotiable of our faith. It's our stake in the ground, our true north that we point our compass toward to guide our behaviors and our actions as we try to live in this world. And I promise there's a whole other sermon that I will give on this topic of how we love those folks. But for now, let me suffice it to say that faith is aspirational. Faith is something we strive to live into. It is a belief we hold up, like I said, a stake in the ground that we point our behaviors and our actions toward because we know it is worthy. We may question it. It may be very difficult for us at times, but this is the direction we're trying to move as individuals, as a church, and as a larger society to treat everyone as if they are worthy of dignity and care. This is non-negotiable for us. And this is how we, how we preserve our spirits, how we repair our own spirits in a broken world. It's how we create the communities of faith and the larger community of justice and inclusion that we long for. And we still have a very long way to go. For the third consecutive year, hate crimes have been on the rise in the U.S., 17% increase just in 2017, and in 2017, a disproportionate increase of 37% for hate crimes targeting Jews. I say this, and I know that this coming week on Tuesday, November 20th, all around the world, folks will be recognizing Transgender Day of Remembrance a day set aside specifically to memorialize those who have been killed in the past year due to anti-transgender hate or prejudice. 
people who have been killed just because they don't fit squarely into the categories of male or female, or more precisely, because they don't fit into somebody else's idea of who they should be. I think about that line from the Laramie Project that's been working on my heart so much, and I think it could easily apply to many transgender people's experiences in the US. So as long as I don't let you know that I'm transgender, as long as it's not visible to you, then you agree not to kill me? This is not a good deal. This is not okay. Transgender Day of Remembrance began in November of 1999 as part of an effort called Remembering Our Dead. The founder of the day, Gwendolyn Ann Smith, says that she started the day to highlight the losses that we are facing due to anti-transgender bigotry and violence. I'm no stranger, she wrote, to the need to fight for our rights and the right to simply exist is first and foremost. With so many seeking to erase transgender people, sometimes in the most brutal ways possible, it is vitally important that those we lose are remembered and that we continue to fight for justice. Sometimes we are so far from living into our universalist non-negotiable in this country and in this world. So far from it that we have to fight for people's basic right to exist, that we have to fight for the opportunity to remember our dead. Over the last 10 years, transgender-based hate crimes have resulted in the murder of more than one person every month in the US. One person a month for more than 10 years now. And this year, we marked the deaths of 23 people in the last year, nearly two a month, murdered because they don't match up with somebody else's idea of who they should be. It's 20 years after Matthew Shepard's internationally televised death, and here we still are. Here we are with our media, generally giving no attention to the murders of transgender people and making it so easy for us to forget that these are our siblings, our parents, our children, our co-workers, our community members, people worthy of dignity and care. So it is usual on the Transgender Day of Remembrance to say the names of those who have died in the last year. And since we won't be here together on Tuesday, I'd like to do that now. Brooklyn Brianna Stevenson, Brandy Seals, Zachariah Z. Fry, Krista Lee Steele Nudslian, Vicki Gutierrez, Celine Walker, Tanya Harvey, Felicia Mitchell, Amia Tyre Berryman, Sasha Wall, Carla Patricia Flores Pavon, Nino Fortson, Gigi Pierce, and Tasha Devine Sherrington English.